Have you ever seen, observed someone else, and they're just seeming to get the results that you wanted? Maybe, for example, in school. You do, you're trying, you're working hard, you're studying, but then when the grades come out, you're just not getting the same results as some of the other people. Maybe it's more with your career. You're working hard. You're putting in the hours. But every time it comes time for a promotion, someone else is called up, not you. Maybe it's things around the house. You work so hard. You have all of these projects. But no matter what you do, the neighbor's grass is just a little bit greener, just a little bit nicer. Maybe even with fitness. You go to the gym. You sweat. You look like you just died, but the other person not breaking a sweat and has muscles everywhere that you didn't even know existed. It can be frustrating when we aren't getting the results we want. And when we aren't getting the results, we want sometimes, we, we want to look and see the cause. And sometimes we look at ourselves and say, what am I not doing? But a lot of the times it's, oh no, they must have something special. They probably have access to something that I just don't have. That's why they're getting different results than I am. Have you ever felt that way about the gospel? Have you had times where it, doesn't, it just doesn't seem like the gospel is producing the results it should and that maybe, maybe the power of the gospel has just diminished. Maybe the power of the gospel just doesn't work the same in your life as it does in the people around you. Why else would we not get the results we want? I know for myself it often feels like what I've been told the gospel should be doing just doesn't seem to match the reality of what the gospel is doing in my life. I know this is what it should look like. I know what the power of the gospel should look like in my life. But for some reason, there are times where I just feel like I'm not seeing it. Do you ever feel that way? It's hard because I think theoretically we want to believe the problem isn't with the gospel, but it's hard not to blame the gospel when the results seem so inconsistent. When we look at people around us and we're like, well, it's doing something in their life, so maybe they have something I don't have. Or even if we look at our own life, we can see seasons in which, yeah, the gospel was producing something, but then seasons in which it just doesn't seem like anything's happening. What's happening to the power of the gospel that sometimes I look and I'm saying, wow, look how close I was with God then, but why am I so far away from him now? There are many ways in which we can have those questions. Maybe for you it's not so much that the power of the gospel is diminished. Maybe it's just that you think that the power of the gospel is overstated. For you, the gospel is something that you used when you came to salvation, and then it will happen again at the end of your life. You received the gospel, you believed the gospel, press pause, and then when you die, that's when the power of the gospel will become efficient again. As far as all the stuff in the middle, the gospel is really just about salvation and glorification, not really much anything else. Maybe the problem of the gospel's power is a matter of priority. 
It's not that it's unimportant. It's just really hard to keep focusing on church stuff when there's so many real problems we're facing. The gospel's important, but it's more of a supplemental power than a primary power. It's for spiritual stuff, not real life. Maybe the problem is that you just aren't sure if the gospel is real. Look, I, I think the gospel is true, and I'm going to do the actions, and I'm going to act like the gospel is real. I'm going to show up to church. I'm going to try to do all these things, but when it comes down to it, I'm just not really positive. I mean, this stuff happened 2,000 years ago, and some of the things that are written in that book, I don't know. Maybe it's a problem of perspective. I was saved over 20 years ago. Sure, when I first became a Christian, I needed the gospel. I was a bad guy back then. But I've been walking with God for 20 years now. The gospel isn't something that I really need as much anymore because I'm walking with God. I needed it then, not so much now. Maybe it's a change of passion. Listen, I, I gave my youth to God. I was there every Sunday. My parents woke me up at eight before 8 o'clock for his 8 o'clock service in the morning. Do you know how early that is? Sure, there was a brunch afterwards, but I had to come get really early to church. I gave my youth to God. Now it's time to enjoy some me time. And you know what? It's okay. God created the things that I'm enjoying. It's okay for me to be passionate, more passionate about those things. Maybe the problem is the problem of countercultural principles. These things that we say, hey, this really matters, but everyone around us says, no, that's crazy. You believe that? Wow. Do you grow up under a rock? Are you okay? Maybe the problem is a matter of unfulfilled promises. Hey, when, when, I, when someone shared the gospel to me, there was a long list of promises. When I signed that contract, they said there was a lot of good things coming. I haven't seen them. Are you telling me that there was a whole bunch of fine print at the bottom of the contract? What's going on? Why haven't I seen these promises fulfilled? Those questions become even more real as we confront our own mortality. As we get closer and closer to death. Wait, do we really think that those promises are going to happen? A number of these are things that I've struggled with and I imagine many of you have struggled with. But then I look around me and there are other people who don't seem to be struggling at all. Why is the power of the gospel better revealed in some than in others? If the problem isn't with the gospel, what's going on that some people show the power of the gospel and others don't? Why isn't the gospel producing the same thing in me as it is in them? In our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at what would inhibit the power of the gospel from being revealed. And here's my argument. The problem is not with the gospel. The problem is that we inhibit the power of the gospel from being revealed when we depart from the pure gospel. The gospel is powerful, but if we do not embrace the pure gospel, then its power will not be revealed in us or through us. Here's our big idea for this morning. Embrace the pure gospel so that its power may be revealed. Embrace the pure gospel so that its power may be revealed. 
Here's the background for where we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. These are people who have already received the gospel. They have apparently believed the gospel, but they are not living according to the power of the gospel. Something is inhibiting the power of the gospel from being revealed in them and through them. So Paul is writing to them, and he's going to take them through a diagnostics test. He's going to go through a list of seven different things that might be inhibiting the power of the gospel from being revealed. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to be seeing seven different things that might be inhibiting the power of the gospel from being revealed in our lives. The first inhibitor I want to look at is a matter of perseverance. Look at the first two verses. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What is Paul's goal? What is he hoping to accomplish with what he's writing? Well, he states his purpose right at the beginning. He is writing them to remind them of the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. Paul is saying, I want to remind you about the good news. Now, if we stop there, that's pretty open-ended. What's the good news he's talking about? Is it the good news that he got a new job? Is it the good news that he's sightseeing in Rome? That wouldn't really be good news for Paul. What's what's the good news that he's referring to? Well, Paul is speaking about some very specific good news, and he gives four qualifiers to make abundantly clear which good news, which gospel he's talking about. First, It's the good news that he preached to them. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, a specific gospel. Second, it's the good news they received. Third, it's the good news in which they stand. Fourth, it's the good news by which they are being saved. He's very clear on which gospel he's reminding them of. So what do we see from these qualifiers? This is not only good news, it's vital news. It's important news. It's news you don't want to miss and you don't want to get wrong. Which is why Paul then adds a qualifier to the good news. Look at verse 2. So he says, it's the good news by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. We see here that Paul brings up the first inhibitor. The gospel is good. The gospel is powerful. It's it's powerful enough to save them. But they must persevere. Now, now before we get too far in, in talking about this, let me just say right here that Paul is not warning them that they might lose their salvation. The Bible is very clear that salvation is not something we can lose. 
Earlier this year, as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we were in John 10, and this is what John 10 says. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. When it says no one can pluck them from his hand, that includes ourselves. If no one else is powerful enough to remove you from God's hand, you included in that, you can't remove yourself from God's hand. Moreover, our salvation is not dependent on us not letting go. The reality is our salvation was only maintained, if our salvation was only maintained because we held on strong enough, uh, strong enough, none of us would be saved. If our salvation remaining depended on us holding on and in our strength maintaining our salvation, none of us would be saved. This is why we are blessed to have a God who keeps us. Jude, at the end, says this in Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep us, keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. To him who is able to keep you. Praise God that our salvation is not dependent on works. We cannot work to attain salvation, nor can we work to maintain salvation. All of it is a good work of which this is why it's called good news. It's a work of God. So when Paul says the good news by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached, if that's not talking about the loss of salvation What is he talking about? I think Paul is warning his readers about two potential and dangerous realities. If you notice at the end of the verse, it says, unless you believed in vain. In our text later, we're also going to see that word in vain again. But in the Greek, these are different words. The word here at the end of of verse 2 is different from the in vain that we're going to see later. The in vain here means without success or effort. So how does Paul use that as a warning? The first warning is to those who might think they have embraced the pure gospel, but their belief was without success or effort, meaning their faith was not genuine. Paul is warning those who are not seeing the power of the gospel revealed by showing them that a lack of perseverance, a lack of embracing the pure gospel might be evidence that they have never truly embraced the gospel. It's a warning against those who wrongly assume they have been saved, but their lack of embracing the pure gospel and their lack of perseverance would show otherwise. Therefore, they believed in vain. If you are wondering why you aren't seeing the power of the gospel revealed in your life, an appropriate evaluation might be to ask, have I ever truly embraced the pure gospel? You can't see the power of the gospel if you have never truly submitted yourself to God and repented and placed your faith in Christ alone. The second warning, though, is for those who believe 
Because there are Christians who genuinely believe, who at times do not persevere, who at times do not embrace the pure gospel. They go through seasons in which they are not holding fast to the word. Paul's warning for them is that if they are not embracing the pure gospel and persevering, they cannot hope to have the same power of the gospel revealed. Let me just put this in really practical terms. We talked about if you went to the gym and you saw different results and you just look, man, I started going to the gym the same time that other guy did, but he has lost like 10 pounds of fat and gained 20 pounds of muscle. What happened? It might be that he persevered in going to the gym while you persevered going to ice cream. That would be a reason. Paul is telling them, listen, if you're not holding fast to this, if you're not persevering in this, how can you expect to have a faith that is not in vain, a faith that has success, that has effort, that has results? You can't expect to have the same results if you're not persevering like another. So how does this practically apply to us? If we truly desire to see the power of the gospel revealed, then we must embrace the pure gospel with perseverance. The power of the gospel is inhibited from being revealed in our lives when we do not persevere. Now, please understand me. I'm not saying that in the end, even in our failures, that God still doesn't conquer. To him who is able to, to finish the good work, Christ will finish the good work, but we're talking about right now. Why are some people seeing more power right now than others? Because they're persevering. Embrace the pure gospel so that its power may be revealed. Let's keep going. Paul is building an argument, so here's the next question. What would keep us from persevering? What would keep us from embracing the pure gospel? if the gospel was not a priority in our lives. The second inhibitor we're looking at is a matter of priority. Look at verse 3 through 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I delivered to you as of first importance. What is Paul saying? This takes priority. Again, let's think about that person who wants to get in shape, but they are struggling with persevering and going to the gym. What might be a reason why they are struggling with persevering? If it's not a priority. If it's not a priority, there's going to always be other things that get in the way of actually going to the gym. There's always going to be a reason to do something else. It must be of first importance. So what did Paul deliver? For, deliver because he said, for I delivered to you as of first importance. The first thing we see is that he delivered what he himself received. Why is that important? Because when we are wondering why someone else is seeing different results than we are, what, what's the thing that we kind of think? Ah, they're doing something different. You know, we, we both started working out at the same time, but they're seeing different reasons. I bet they're on a different workout program. I bet someone gave them something special to do, and that's why. It's not, the problem's not me. It's, the problem is that they didn't give me what that guy got. That's not what is happening. What did Paul give them? What had been revealed to him? Paul's saying, we're on the same program. 
We're, I've given you exactly what I received. The lie that has surrounded the gospel since the beginning has always been there's secret things. Hey, come be part of our church. We'll tell you the secrets. Hey, hey, you, there's a reason why you're not seeing that stuff. Hey, if you really want to be blessed, if you really want to have the power, just wait. Give us this much money and we'll, we'll tell you the secret. Paul's not doing that. I'm giving you what I received. And it's my priority. What did he deliver to them? The pure gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul delivered that which was the most powerful. There is nothing more powerful than the pure gospel. This is everything that we celebrate on Easter. As we saw on Friday, Christ died for our sins. He paid our debt. He faced our consequence. He was buried. This is significant. He really died. He wasn't just in a coma. He wasn't just weakened by blood loss. No, he died and was buried. And as we have been celebrating this morning, he was raised on the third day. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for our salvation. The sacrifice that he offered was accepted. It was enough. This is the gospel that Paul preached and they believed. This is what saved them. There was no secret program because there is nothing that can improve the power of the pure gospel. But if that's true, if nothing can improve the pure gospel, why was the power of the gospel so much more evident in Paul's life than the life of his readers? If they both have the same thing, why is it showing more results in Paul's life than in the life of the Corinthian church? Because it was a priority to him. Paul viewed the gospel as first importance. It wasn't a priority. It was the priority. So how does this practically apply to us? If the gospel is not of first importance in our lives, we cannot hope to see its full power revealed in us. We can't neglect the gospel and prioritize other things and still expect to see its power in us. Embrace the pure gospel so that its power may be revealed. Again, Paul's building an argument. So what would keep the gospel from being priority in your life? If you don't believe the proof. That's our third inhibitor. It's a matter of proof. Look at verses 5 through 8. It says, Paul delivered to them that Christ appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What does Paul say four times in that little section? He appeared. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to more than 500 people. He appeared to James and the apostles. Finally, he appeared to Paul. Why is Paul saying this? Why bring up all these people? Because you won't prioritize what you don't think is true. Uh, this week... Now, he doesn't know I'm going to say this. This week, I actually watched Clark Deffendorf just flying on the track. If any of you are f friends with Fred Deffendorf on Facebook, then you saw 
just Clark flying. Now imagine if I went up to Clark and I said, Clark, you're fast, but I can make you way faster. Here's what I want you to do. Before every race, I want you to clap three times. I want you to walk like a chicken. And then I want you to yell at the top of your lungs in falsetto, I'm the greatest. That's what you need to do. If you do that every single race, man, you are going to fly, mostly because of embarrassment. (laughs) What are the chances that Clark will prioritize what I just told him? Zero. Bryce, on the other hand, would do it. But what are the chances that Clark would do that? None. There's no proof that that would work. On the other hand, what if Clark's coach comes up to him and says, listen, I've been doing, I've done this research. It was a doctoral research that I've done. I want to show you what is consistent about every single Olympic athlete and how fast their feet turn over and every single one of them, this is the steps per minute that all of them across the board in every track and field event do. How likely is Clark going to do, prioritize that? Way more. There's proof. He's seen it. Why is Paul talking about all of these things and giving proof? He appeared. Because if they don't believe the proof, they're not going to prioritize it. You don't put your faith on something you aren't sure will support you. So look what Paul's doing. This is the proof. What I told you really happened. Here are all these people who confirm that can confirm the same thing. Most of them are still alive. What is he saying? Go ask them. Now some of you might be sitting here and say, well, that's great for Paul and the Corinthian church. They could go up and ask them, but I'm pretty sure by now all of those people are dead. For them, the proof was easily, was easily verified. What good does that do for us? Here's my answer to that. First, their proof serves as proof to us even 2,000 years later. Here's why. It's one thing to see proof. It's totally different to testify regarding that proof. If you saw a powerful crime lord, head of of the, the mafia family, commit a crime, and they ask you to testify to that crime, but you know if you testify he's going that the crime lord's going to kill you and your family. You gonna testify to that? You saw it. I'm not saying anything. You saw it. You have proof. You believe it. You gonna testify to it? No. That's a really different thing. What did the apostles and disciples see the Jewish leaders do to Jesus? They killed him. Why? Because he was taking their power and their position. What do you think is going to be their response to all of these people that are now saying Jesus is alive? They're going to see it as the same threat. They're going to say, hey, these people are taking our power and our position. What are they going to do to the disciples? If they killed the master, what are they going to do to the servants? They're going to kill them. So in our example, if I know that, am I going to testify to to that? Knowing I'm going to die? If I do, it must mean because I really believed it. 
How can the proof of all these men still work for us 2,000 years later? Because almost every single one of them died for that proof. Almost every single one of the apostles gave their life proclaiming that Christ appeared to them. That is a proof that still works for us 2,000 years later. On the other hand, we have the example of Paul. Paul did not walk with Jesus like the other apostles and disciples. Paul says, last of all, as to one untimely born, meaning he was born later, he appeared also to me. We know that story. He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. Again, we could say, yeah, but Paul had it easy. God appeared to him. That was a miracle. What do we think it is when God reveals himself to us through his spirit and his word? It's a miracle. No one comes to the Father without the Father first revealing himself to them. Our story is like Paul's. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. For every single one of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, he appeared to you. The question is, can other people look at your life as proof to the reality of Christ? Could I stand here and say, if you are here this morning and you're not sure that Jesus really rose again, I want you to look at the members of this church because he appeared to them. That's the proof that we should be offering to others. This is how we respond. Please understand, it's natural to have doubts. It's natural to have questions. But we must actively pursue the answers to those questions. Paul gave them a resource to pursue proof. If you're not embracing the pure gospel because there's still questions where you're like, I'm not sure about this, then pursue those. You're not going to see the power of the gospel fully revealed if there's still things where you're like, I'm unsure about that, but I really don't want to look at that question because then it might just destroy everything else. No, our foundation of faith is a reality. We can look into these things. Are there going to be things that we're like, hey, we don't know. We're going to have to trust that. Absolutely. But the matter of Christ's resurrection is not one of those. Pursue the proof. But here's what's surprising about proof, that God offers it to us at all. God owes us nothing, but he gives us everything. God didn't need to offer proof. He didn't need to prove the reality of Christ's resurrection, but he did. There, this is something that was huge for Paul and established Paul's perspective. That's the fourth inhibitor we're going to look at, a matter of perspective. Look at how what God did in revealing himself to Paul, look at how that changed his perspective. In verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. The fact that God would reveal himself to a sinner like Paul was unbelievable. Look at Paul's perspective of himself. I am the least of the apostles. I am unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve for him to give me proof. I mean, yeah, when I'm looking at a resume like Paul's, I'm a little surprised myself that God revealed himself to Paul. And so were all the apostles and, and disciples. But is Paul unique in his position before God? Are there people who deserve 
to have God give them proof more than others? Is there anyone that can come before God and say, God, I deserve for you to prove yourself to me? Should any of us have a different perspective from Paul? No. Paul's perspective is the right perspective. We don't deserve this. We are not almost holy and just need a little bit of sanctification on the side. No, our perspective should be like Paul's. We should be overwhelmed by a God who would reveal himself to us. If we don't have this perspective, if we come not humbly before God, but haughtily before God, then we've got it all wrong. The reason this is so important is because then it leads to our next inhibitor, a matter of passion. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy. I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you see Paul's passion? Three times in one verse, Paul addresses grace. He addresses the unmerited favor he received. Paul is saying, I deserved nothing, but I received everything. That's his perspective. And where does his perspective lead him? To his great passion. God's grace was not in vain. I worked harder than any of them. At face value, this might seem like he's boasting, but he's not. First of all, Paul is speaking from passion because of what he received. Paul is passionate about accomplishing the work of the gospel. But notice whose power he points to. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul never got over the grace he was shown. Grace never became common to Paul. And that meant he was passionate. So how does this apply to us? If we don't have the right perspective of our position before God, then we will not be overwhelmed by his grace and we will not be passionate for the work of God. If we are not passionate about what we have received, we will, continue, we will not continue to embrace what we have believed. Paul didn't see the work God gave him as a problem to solve. His view was that it was a privilege to serve. Is that how we see things? Is that our perspective? Is that our passion? Do I see the work that God calls me to as problems to solve? Or do I see the work as something that is a privilege to serve? Before we look at our last two inhibitors, I want us to pause and evaluate. Verse 11 says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. I want to pause real quick and just evaluate how far we've gone. How can I tell if I'm embracing the gospel? What is a test I can use? The first test is whether or not the power of the gospel is being revealed in you. It says, so we preach, so you believed. Have you embraced the pure gospel that was preached to you? Is the, is the power of the gospel being revealed in you? Go through the list. Are you persevering? 
Is the gospel your priority? Have you accepted the proof? Is your perspective humble or haughty? Are you passionate about God's grace and the work he gives you? These are all ways in which we can evaluate whether or not we are embracing the pure gospel. But there's another test. The second test is not just whether the power of the gospel is revealed in you, but also whether it's being revealed through you. I I want you to notice a progression that I'm going to call the gospel life cycle in this passage. Something that just keeps on happening over and over and over again. The first step of this gospel life cycle is to receive the gospel. We see that back in verse 1. They received the gospel. We saw, see it also in verse 3. Paul received the gospel. The second step of the gospel life cycle is believing the gospel. It does no good to receive the gospel if we do not then also believe the gospel. We see that at the end of verse 2 as well as here in verse 11. They believed the gospel. I think for many of us, we see that being, that being the end of the gospel life cycle. Receive the gospel, believe the gospel, we're done. And is it true that people will believe the gospel and go to heaven with that being the cycle? Sure. The man on the cross, the, 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 right next to Jesus. On this day, you will be with me in paradise. That's where the cycle ended for him. But is that the normal progression that should be expected in our, in our lives? No, there's one more part. They preach the gospel. Look how many times we see that within these verses. Verse 1, the gospel I preached to you. Verse 2, the word I preached to you. Verse 3, I delivered to you what I also received. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach. Over and over again, this is the cycle. The apostles received the gospel from Jesus Christ himself. What did they do with it? They believed. Then what did they do? They preached. Can you imagine if the apostles and disciples received the gospel, preached the gospel, and then said, you know what? The only power that should be revealed of the gospel is the, go- the power in my own life. I'm just going to focus here, and I'm just going to do my best. That's the only thing I need to worry about. What would have happened if that's what the apostles had done? None of us would be here. But that's not what they did. Not only did they want to see the power of the gospel revealed in their lives, they wanted the power of the gospel revealed through their lives. So they preached and the ones who, they, who received their preaching believed the gospel, and then they preached. And that cycle has continued on and on for 2,000 years, which is why we're here right now. So shame on us if we stop that cycle. Shame on us if we think that the only thing we need to do is receive the gospel and believe the gospel and then not care about everyone else. We must then preach the gospel. If we claim to be embracing the gospel, but the only demonstration of its power is in our personal lives and not also in our public profession, then we have not truly embraced the pure gospel. We demonstrate that we have embraced the pure gospel when the power of the gospel is revealed in us and through us. Let's continue because Paul's not done. He's still concerned that the power of the gospel might be inhibited in the Corinthian church. 
because they are abandoning a foundational principle of the gospel. The sixth inhibitor is a matter of principle. Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is a major concern for Paul. This is a departure from the pure gospel. Paul already told them that he delivered as of first importance that Christ was raised on the third day. Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. This is something that must be addressed. The resurrection is a foundational principle of faith. To remove the resurrection is to preach a different gospel. But more than that, to remove the resurrection would mean that it's not any gospel. Why? What does gospel mean? Good news. Is it good news if there's no resurrection? No. How can you guys be preaching a gospel that doesn't include the resurrection of Christ? That's not good news at all. For the next 10 verses, Paul is going to lay out the logical reason for why the resurrection is necessary. We're not going to spend much time on this because his argument is so clear. We're just going to walk right through this, looking at verse 12 through 13. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If there's no resurrection, Jesus is still dead. Which, spoiler, presents a big problem for our faith. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This is the second, second and third time we're seeing the word vain, but it's different from the first. This one has the idea of an empty vessel, an empty jar. What's the point of a jar, of a vessel, to hold things? I don't care how beautiful the vessel is, if it's empty, it's pointless. If they're presenting a gospel that doesn't have the resurrection inside of it, it's pointless. You can say, no, but it's all about living a better life, being a better you, it's following the principles of Jesus, it's, it's being your best self. I don't care how beautiful you make that look. If it doesn't have the resurrection inside of it, it's vanity. Our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. But it gets worse. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Hey, if you're going out, if we're saying that the resurrection didn't happen, do you know what that means? It means we've called God a liar. Because we've been telling people that God raised his son from the dead. But if that didn't happen, because if, that, if the, the resurrection doesn't exist, then we have been calling God a liar, which is, again, a big deal. Paul now gets super practical and he lists three things that are lost when we remove the resurrection. The first thing we lose is salvation. Verse 17, And if Christ was, has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Without the resurrection, our sins remain unpaid for because it means his sacrifice was not sufficient. 
Lots of people were crucified. What was special was not the crucifixion. It was the crucifixion and the resurrection. By the blood of animals for millennia, there were sacrifices offered, but none of those sacrifices were sufficient, which is why the priest stood daily in the temple making sacrifices which could never pay for sins. But the fact that Christ rose again means that his price, what he paid, was sufficient. But if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We lose salvation. Second, we lose eternal life. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If there's no resurrection, there's no eternal life. The ones who died stay dead. There can be no eternal life without the resurrection. Third, we lose hope and are to be pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this is it, if our hope is for right now and then when we die, nothing happens, we should be pitied. That's not hope. In fact, in verse 32, Paul says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If our hope is only in right now and not eternity, then we are the biggest idiots and should be pitied. Do you see what we lose when we remove the resurrection? We lose everything. Praise God, the gospel is not open to human editing. There may have been some who began proclaiming a different message, but it was powerless to change the pure gospel. God's pure gospel is not up to our whims, fancies, and personal interpretations. Praise God that Paul's hypothetical, logical progression was not reality, because this is what verse 20 says. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. Christ has been raised. He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does this mean? It means that in his resurrection, we can see what our resurrection will be. He is the first fruit. He establishes the type of harvest that is coming. But this is the part I love. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul is presenting two champions. In different movies or history, there were times in which instead of the armies all fighting against each other, you would choose a champion to fight on your behalf. Humanity's champion was Adam. And he was the best of us. And he failed. And as our champion, that meant that sin and death reigned. Now before we would throw rocks at Adam, he, we would have done no better. If we could have chosen, if we could have voted for a human champion, Adam's the guy we would have picked. We're no better. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But this is the immense blessing. Because heaven sent its champion. God looked on our plight and he sent his champion to fight on our behalf. Christ 
humbled himself by taking on human flesh, and then he humbled himself by dying on the cross. He is the champion who can conquer what Adam couldn't conquer. Do you know what the best part is? We get to choose which champion we want. Adam's already our champion. But we now get to choose a different champion, and we get to do it after the battle. We've already seen the result. We've already seen Christ's victory, and we are given the privilege to choose him after. Wouldn't that have been nice in different battles of like, hey, these are the two champions. We'll watch them fight. Then you get to choose which side you want to be on. That would have been great. That's what we're given. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. The question is, if this is the reality of the resurrection, if the resurrection is so incredible, so powerful, why would anyone remove the resurrection? Why would anyone doubt the resurrection? Because we lack patience in seeing what God has promised. The seventh and final inhibitor is a matter of, of patience. Look at verses 22 through 26. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why do I call it a matter of patience? Because not all of the promises of the gospel have been fulfilled. Paul is right. The resurrection is huge. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. It is because of the resurrection that we believe we will rise again. It is because of Christ's victory over death that we believe death will not conquer us. What's the problem? People are still dying. Death is still here. If the promise is that through Christ's death... Through his death, death is conquered. Why does it look like death is still winning? It's been 2,000 years, and in that time, everyone has died. Where is the power of the gospel when we need it most? Where was the power of the gospel when we had two funerals last week? God, you promised. Where is it? Maybe the resurrection isn't real. Maybe we just got that part wrong, because as I'm looking at things, people keep dying. This is where Paul shows us it's a matter of patience. We must choose to trust the process. There's a timeline that Christ is following. Why hasn't death been destroyed? Why haven't the promises of Christian resurrection been fulfilled? Because it's not time yet. Look what it says. In Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. This is not a promise of universal salvation. It's for those who are in Christ. It is for those who belong to Christ. But there's an order. So what's keeping Jesus from doing that right now? Why not destroy death right now? Because there's a plan to follow. As we've gone through the Gospel of John, we saw over and over again Christ's submission to the Father, that he was following God's plan. And do I understand the timeline? Do I understand why it hasn't happened yet? No. But I know in verse 28, it says that the conclusion is that God will be made all in all. What does that mean? That God will be glorified. For whatever reason, the reason that Christ has not already done this yet, it is for God's glory. So will we have patience in receiving the promises? 
This is the great promise we have in Christ's resurrection, but we must have patience. Before death is defeated, every enemy, everything must be under his rule. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But make no mistake, Jesus has already dealt the fatal blow to death. Death was defeated when he walked out of the tomb. Death has not been destroyed, but it has been defeated. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, and that is the death of death, and no more. It's been defeated, and we are looking forward to its destruction. That is our faith and hope. And until it is destroyed, we must patiently trust God's plan. What does this mean for us? Embrace the pure gospel that is part of God's sovereign plan with patience. Not everything has been fulfilled, but it will be. We will not embrace the pure gospel if we do not have patience in waiting for God's promises. Be patient. The full power of the gospel will be revealed. He who began a good work will see it to completion. As the worship team comes up, why is the power of the gospel not being revealed in and through me? Is the problem with the gospel? No. The problem is not the gospel. The problem is me. What keeps the power of the gospel from being revealed fully in my life is the inhibitors that I place in the way. When I don't persevere and hold fast, when the gospel is not my priority, when I do not embrace the proof of the gospel, when my perspective is my own worthiness, not my unworthiness, when my passion is not to do the work that God has given me, when I undermine the gospel by removing foundational principles, when I am impatient to see what God is doing. The solution, though, in all of those things is the same. Embrace the pure gospel. Whatever it is that might be inhibiting you from seeing the power of the gospel revealed in your life, the solution is the same. Embrace the pure gospel.